Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically, on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you, because Reed is definitely his own man, with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada, and around the globe. Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. And happy Thanksgiving, or day after Thanksgiving, or two days after Thanksgiving, whatever it may be for you when you are hearing the show on AM stations around the country or podcast. So this show is really one of my favorites. The history of the Declaration of Independence and the men who had the courage to sign it. Courage we need to kind of reach within ourselves and find again. Because that American DNA didn't exist just in 1776. While it may be more dispersed now, and it may be, in the case of some people, less prevalent, it still exists. And in all of you, or most of you, who are listening to this show, I think it exists pretty strongly. And then we're going to have a huge rat-a-tat-tat, as I promised last week, since we ran out of time, talking about Obama's cabal. You know, it was the final show in the series Obama, Obama's third term. And hopefully you found it interesting. It is important to know the people behind the policies and the people who use your government, funded by your tax dollars, to enforce those policies, regardless of your will. And of course, we're going to start off with our founder's quote. John Adams, our founder again. And apropos for this story of the Declaration of Independence on or about Thanksgiving Day 2023. Quote, be it remembered, however, that liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it, derived from our own maker. But if we had not, our fathers have earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasure, and their blood, unquote. And our rant story. So you know, all of us get caught up in the day-to-day, the frantic exercise of life, and the impediments that life throws at you like curveballs with no warning. But about two weeks ago, despite really not having the time to do it, quote-unquote, or thinking I didn't have the time to do it, my grandson and my son came out hunting, My son wasn't hunting, he didn't have a tag, but my grandson had a Wyoming tag. We spent six grand days together. Oh, the hunting wasn't terrific, it was warm, and the animals weren't really moving. They don't need a lot of calories on warm days, so they feed literally after dark and go in way before daylight. But over the course of the six days, we did spot this bull further up in the high country of the headquarters ranch. And we watched it for several days, kind of studying what it was doing and when it was doing it and what its hangouts were up there in the rocks and the trees. And then on the day before he was scheduled to leave, the wind was just right, very important in elk hunting. And the weather was good, a little crisp. And off we went at daybreak. I'll cut the story short. It's a rugged climb up there. But my grandson made a great shot, and he has himself a trophy elk. 350.5 on the Boone and Crockett scoring, which for those of you who know is a monster. In fact, most people who hunt elk their whole lives will never kill a bull even close to that size. And I commented to him that at the tender age of 14, to get spoiled as an elk hunter will be a lifelong affliction. But the moral of this story is, whatever gives you pleasure, 
whatever you like to share with family or close friends. Whether it's playing chess or reading Shakespeare or, heaven forbid, watching TV or hunting or saddling up a horse or watching a fly curl out on the riffles of a stream, hopefully to a waiting trout. Those are magical moments, and that's what life is really about, those magical moments and who you share it with. And I hope all of you had a terrific, or are having a terrific Thanksgiving. The best ever with family and friends, enjoying good food and the activities you all love together. And now, let's discuss the history of the Declaration of the Independence and the moxie of those brave 50-some-odd patriots who pledged their fortunes and their lives and declared independence from a tyrant. Remember, what was good in 1776 is good now. A lot of kids don't know, and I want to refresh people's minds as to the three key documents that are the underpinnings of the American Representative Republic. You have the Declaration of Independence, signed July 4th, 1776, birth of the nation, the day we declared independence, not just from Britain, folks, but from our government. Britain was our government. Think about that as I go through this segment. Think about that as I talk about the matrix that they want you to live in if you don't step outside your box. It is the birth, really, of a civilization. It was certainly the birth of a society. And the men who signed that declaration, 56 of them, these people had, I mean, they were steel. They were made of steel. They were made of resolve. They believed in freedom. They believed that a tyrannical government has no rights to impose its will upon its people. And we're going to go over just very briefly. I've done it before on this show, but it's so important. It's so relevant in juxtaposition to, you know, a percentage of our population cowering in their basements right now that you just can't let it go. You can't let it go. And what happened to these men when they pledged, and I quote, for the support of this declaration, that is the Declaration of Independence, with firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You know, those are words which truly will live in history. Yes, the men of steel and courage and conviction and ideals that separated us from our then government, the tyrannical government of King George of Britain. You know, quite the bunch here, quite the bunch. You talk about courage. You talk about fortitude. They were from all sorts of walks of lives. There were lawyers and merchants and physicians and plantation owners, surveyors, You know, they all had a common vision, though, and that was freedom and the right to throw off the yoke of tyrannical government. And that right, by the way, was later ensconced in the Constitution. In fact, in several ways, in the Constitution itself and in the Second Amendment and in the Declaration of Independence. And for doing this, for standing up for liberty, for standing up for what was to become America, these men paid the ultimate price. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 men fought and died from wounds and battle in the Revolutionary War. 24 were lawyers and jurists. 11 were merchants. Nine were farmers and large plantation owners. They were all men of means in some way, shape, or form. They were all well-educated. And they signed the Declaration of Independence, folks, knowing full well that Britain would consider it treason, and that the penalty would be death if they were ever captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy plantation owner and trader, 
All his ships were swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly, consistently. He served in the Congress without pay. His family was kept in hiding. All his possessions were taken by the British. He died in poverty. British soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. And they died far less wealthy and in some cases destitute than at the time when they signed the Declaration of Independence. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr., he kind of saw that General Cornwallis, the British general, had taken over the Nelson home, his home, for his headquarters, the British headquarters. And he urged George Washington to open fire nonetheless. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The British jailed his wife and she died in a British prison. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she lay dying. Their 13 children fled scattered for their lives. His fields and his gristmill were completely torched and laid to waste by the British. For more than a year, this man lived in forests and caves. He returned home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. He never saw them again. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston, they suffered similar fates. Look, these men were giants. And if I sound emotional, I am. Because, you know, <clears throat> you stack these men up against what you see today. And you only see a vestige of it because it's hidden from you. The Matrix. They were the beginnings of the American civilization. It's up to us to make sure that we're not witnessing the end of the American civilization. Now we have uh, American athletes who turn their back on the flag and the anthem. Outrageous. We have Americans marauding in the streets, burning and looting the homes and businesses of other Americans. We have spoiled, rotten, brat, brainwashed, or publicity-seeking stars that downgrade the country and the vast majority of the country. These people are the minority. We cannot let the minority prevail. It will be the end of the American civilization. I think it's fitting to read you a large portion of, if not all, the Declaration of Independence to remind you of how these men thought, to stir your memory of how the American empire, the American civilization, the American manifest destiny, American exceptionalism began with 56 brave men. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume amongst the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. 
Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind is more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused to assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent shall be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable only to tyrants. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving its assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries, so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally 
the forms of our governments, for suspending our legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all causes whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of the people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, uh, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of the frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of their attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We've reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. Write up the rest of the Declaration of Independence, the establishment of the United States of America, and the birth of the American civilization. The rest of the Declaration of Independence, folks. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of sanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, and friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Signed by John Hancock, President. Excuse me, listeners. You know, I think of these men. I think of those words. I take their their list of grievances against King George and think about the current government of the United States, the largest bureaucracy in the world by twice. And it makes my blood boil. I'm sure it does yours, too. And now for the rest of the story. Two of the signers, John Adam and Thomas Jefferson, were future presidents of the United States. They were bitter enemies for most of their lives. In fact, vicious competitors. Jefferson won his presidency employing the Electoral College, kind of at the last minute. That's a whole nother historical story. Beating out Adams. And their interests and their thoughts as to whether America should be a federalist system, i.e. states' rights or a centralized system, were juxtaposed 
But in the end, like good Americans, they became friends. They had more in common than not. And they wrote each other in the last years of their lives often. In fact, each of them penned a letter to the other the day before their respective deaths. In the most ironic twists of history and a startling convergence of energies in the universe, these two men, fathers of the country and American civilization, men of courage and conviction and resolute will, died on the same exact day, which happened to be July 4th, 1826. So now you know. Folks, it's up to us if this country survives. It's up to us if our freedoms live or perish. It is up to us if our children have better or degraded lives as compared to ours. It is up to us to see that this obvious downward spiral, by every indication, based on these historical stories I bring to you, of the American civilization is arrested and reversed. We're it. Tag, we're it. There's nobody behind us. Those in front of us are mostly powerless. It is us. Only us. And may I suggest that just like you make resolutions at New Year's, you and your family and your friends and your circle of friends to do anything and everything you can to save this country from its current descent into hell. And you know, as of right now, there's a shot that we won't have to write another so-called Declaration of Independence. But you must act. You must go to your school board meetings. You must ensure the proper education of your children. You must ensure they are not brainwashed, that they are not spoon-fed the propaganda of the Marxist left, that they know real American history. Because the touchstone of the past is the guidepost of the future, as I say all the time. Okay, are you ready for some rat-a-tat-tat, those of you who, whose thirst was not quenched last week since we ran out of time and had none? Well, here we go. Over there in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And by the way, next week's show and the show after will be the history of Palestine and the various countries that formerly constituted Palestine and the history of Israel. And I'm going to tie the two together because it goes back thousands of years what we're seeing play out now. And if any part of the world could blow up the world, it is the Mideast. And you need to know. But it seems that five Chinese warships have now arrived in the very crowded Mediterranean Sea. NATO ships, two aircraft carrier groups from the United States, Russian ships, ships from Turkey, Israeli ships. You know, it's kind of a disaster waiting to happen. Hopefully it won't. But you know, whenever you get the warships of 30 plus countries congregated in a rather small area, particularly in this day and age, the Mediterranean Sea is not the Pacific Ocean, bad things can happen even unintentionally. And along those same lines, you know, there was a big hue and cry, and there should be, about why Israel was so unprepared for the Hamas attack on October 7th. Because it seems that some people knew about it. That's right, the press. There seems to have been reporters and photographers embedded with the Hamas groups that invaded Israel on that day and slaughtered 1,400 Israelis, many of them in their homes, their beds, their cars, unarmed civilians, 
from both Reuters and the Associated Press. This is a report, by the way, from Honest Reporting. Remember that all these articles, folks, all Rat-a-tat-tat articles and others, are on the website under Rat-a-tat-tat or the appropriate designation for the article, International, Family Safety, etc. The photos from these news agencies, by the way, include ones that are showing the terrorists breaking down the gates to Kibbutz Kafar Aza. Residents were caught completely off guard there. Dozens were murdered. And there's also photos that show photographers were on the scene. (laughs) They weren't just merely bystanders miles away just hearing about it. As terrorists took civilians, such as that poor German gal that wound up dead, Shani Luke, and attacking Israeli tanks on the other side of the Gaza border. The four reporters and photographers that are credited by the Associated Press, oh yes, got credited for this. For images of the attacks, Halan Alessia, Yusuf Masood, Ali Mahmoud and Hatem Ali, and I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce it right, all are photographers that are based in Gaza. And did you know as a little, you know, rest of the story? The Associated Press, it seems, shared office space with Hamas in 2021. And there's even a photograph of Hassan Alassia, one of these photographers, supposedly, you know, the unbiased media getting kissed by a top Hamas operative who was one of the chief architects of the deadly attacks. But don't worry, folks. Our press is not corrupt. There's a video staying on the same topic that was actually taken of the death, destruction, terror, and barbaric brutality of this attack. It's about 45 minutes long. There's a hundred congressmen who have seen it. A number of other mucky mucks from around the world have seen it. All describe it as horrifying. The government doesn't want to release it to the public because, you know, we just can't take it, folks. Or maybe it would influence us to lean a little bit toward Israel rather than the Palestinians and Hamas. Remember who the president is, Barry Obama, not Kadaver. And remember that Barry hates Israel and he loves the Palestinians and Iran. We do have snippets of that video on the website that we've been able to glean from X, Twitter, etc. And they are under the audio bar they're short, but you'll get the picture. Imagine 45 minutes of even more gruesome footage. And speaking of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of folks around academia, around the globe, and particularly here in the United States, shouting the praises of Hamas and extolling the virtues of the Palestinians and denigrating the Israelis, many of these uh, so-called Palestinian supporters are on campuses around the United States. Oh, yes, some of those same campuses that spawned the Obama cabal. But what's really important about these campuses, or what's really kind of interesting about these campuses, is that the elite universities around the United States, this report just came out, $33 billion in grants and contracts from the federal government since 2018. This, according to the outfit, Open the Books. Ten universities with large endowments to begin with have taken billions of federal tax dollars. That's money from your pocket and mine, folks. In fact, the collective endowments of these hoity-toity halls of education grew from $172 billion, these are colleges, right? Last time I checked, these are not like uh, General Motors, to $237 billion by the end of 2022, quite the feat over the pandemic, eh? And additionally, these universities are enjoying $12 billion in special tax treatment benefits. <laughs> well, that's money out of your pocket and my pocket also, folks. Stanford University, Columbia University, oh, Obama's alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, Yale University, and Harvard University took $7 billion, $5.9 billion, 
billion, 3.7 billion, 3.5 billion, 3.3 billion in federal grants, respectively. Mushell's University, Princeton, Brown University, and Dartmouth College took 1.8 billion, 1.2 billion, and 775 million, respectively. And Northwestern University and Cornell took 3 billion each. The comment in the Open the Books report, I quote, These institutions are now more federal contractor than educator, collecting more on government contracts and grants than undergraduate student tuition. By the way, five of these schools, Cornell, Columbia, Dartmouth, Brown, UPenn, took $220.6 million in additional funds from the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund, which was part of the COVID stimulus. And just as an example, this wonderful education that our kids are getting by these multi six-figure-in-the-billion endowment universities, that it seems your taxpayer dollars and my taxpayer dollars, no matter whether our kids go to college or where they go to college, are supporting, are the root of anti-Israeli, pro-Hamas sentiment. Stanford has had a series of thousands of students conducting sit-ins and demanding that the administration of the university condemn Israel. And more than 30 student organizations at Harvard signed a letter blaming Israel for the attacks because, you know, it was Israel's fault that Hamas came into these kibbutzes and other little border settlement towns and murdered people in their beds. I've told you for a long time that these COVID jab lawsuits are coming. Boy, are they starting to stack up. In fact, you'll be delighted to know that the Justice Department just posted a new jobs ad. It's looking for eight new attorneys to defend the federal government in vaccine injury cases. Huh, imagine that. You know, the most safe and effective vaccine or injection, since it's not a vaccine, ever developed by man over the span of human history. Because it seems that there's more and more people who were forced by the then-ruled illegal government mandates to take the jab. And they've suffered serious side effects or death or death of a loved one. From the ad itself, quote, the office is currently expanding to address workload created by an increase in cases filed under the Vaccine Act, unquote. And by the way, this came like 30 days after a little notice, but you're going to hear a lot about it. Lawsuit was filed in Louisiana by six vaccine injured plaintiffs against the federal government. And this suit seeks to overturn the immunity which was illegally given, illegally taken, and is now being illegally employed by the pharmaceutical giants like Pfizer and Moderna. Godspeed to those plaintiffs, and Godspeed to all the plaintiffs to come, and boy, there's going to be a bunch. And you may think that our problems are limited to the southern border, folks, but unfortunately, they're not limited to the southern border. You know, our buddy Obama's pal and long-term associate and disciple Mayorkas is busy on the northern border, too, you know, making it secure. You may not know this, but the Canadian-American border is the longest border on the planet, 5,500 miles. And Mike Kelly, a congressman from Pennsylvania, he's on the, the Judiciary Committee, is beginning to warn that the northern border is, quote, virtually unwatched, unquote. You know, shiny object down there in the, on the southern border and, oh, bring in the goodies on the northern border. The southern border had 2.4 million quote-unquote encounters and hundreds of thousands that weren't encountered over fiscal year 23. Remember, the federal government runs October to October. The northern border saw a smaller amount, but still staggering, 189,402 encounters. And you have to think that probably the missed folks on the northern border, given its size and the lack of personnel, 
is probably two or three times the ratio as down at the southern border. It's also a pretty steep increase under our wonderful, our wonderful Department of Homeland Security head cheese Mayorkas. 27,000 in fiscal year 21, the year he took over the Department of Homeland Security, it jumped 109,535 in 2022, and here we are in 23 at 189,000. I think he's doing a bang-up job, don't you think? And by the way, just in one sector, just on the limited encounters that a widely spread, very thin staff and a huge border, but just based on that one sector, 76 different countries are represented by the illegal aliens that have been encountered by border agents on the north in the last year, which, by the way, surpasses the number of countries represented in the past combined, combined. It seems that many illegal aliens are flying in from points all around the globe to Canada. Gee, I wonder who's paying for that. Can anybody spell the name George Soros or Open Society Foundation? And then just kind of waltzing across the northern border, never to be seen or heard from again, at least we hope. It seems like the left has a new tactic that they're kind of testing out for the 2024 elections. So this happened during the primaries in several states, but on November 7th, election day this year, offices in the state of Washington, Georgia, and three other states became the targets of terrorism. People mailed envelopes with white powder, which, by the way, in a number of cases, not all, the FBI and investigators found to be laced with fentanyl. As you may know, it takes a very small amount of fentanyl, just even skin contact, to drop you over. This is kind of a deeper offshoot of the machine suddenly not working after they were working fine just a day before because they had been recalibrated. You know, what happened down in Arizona in 2022. Anything to interfere with the election process, and, you know, it's best if it's in a red area, folks, because that kind of accomplishes more of the desired result. And you may remember, I think it was two weeks ago in the Obama third term series, I talked about what was happening in South Africa, and I've talked about it in previous shows. In fact, uh, South Africa was in my first reparations show more than six years ago that people laughed at, although nobody's, nobody's laughing now. You know, the it-can't-happen-here syndrome, I think, has been, for most people who have a brain, broken. But in South Africa, I mentioned the murder of scores of white farmers down there. And I got several emails saying, you know, I was totally off base, and what was I talking about, and this was a far-right-wing conspiracy, and I should be ashamed of myself. Well, I did a little research for you, and we'll find this very interesting. Particularly, by the way, all you folks out there who are listening to me on farms and ranches throughout the United States and Canada, if you think it can't happen here, I suggest you rethink. Particularly since demographics of this country is changing at the rate of somewhere between 3 and 4 million people a year flooding across the northern and southern borders. And God only knows what the effect of illegal immigration is up in Canada, particularly with treaty at the helm. But South Africa's Department of Agricultural Land Reform and Rural Development, they issued a new notice this month. That's right, this month. Restricting agricultural export permits, right, kind of a mainstay for farms, which have a minimum amount of black ownership and employment. Whites, by the way, are only 7% of South Africa's population. It's run by an outfit called the African National Congress, the ANC. Bloodthirsty, obsessed with race, versus racism. This is not a good group of folks. And that government has been passing laws over the last decade, actually, but particularly over the last three or four years as they tighten the screws to ensure, quote, black economic empowerment, B-E-E. 
in the agricultural industry, which down there is agri-B-E-E. So farmers who have an annual revenue of 10 million rand, which is about $530,000 or so, if they want to export goods to the United States or Europe, they have to have a permit. And the application process requires these farmers to fill out Agri-B scorecards, you know, kind of a agricultural social credit system. And they have to demonstrate that they've met certain racial targets, ownership, management, skills development, etc. And each of these targets comes with points. If you get enough points, you get to export. If you don't, well, I guess you go out of business. So an agricultural business whose board is at least 50% black gets two points. You get another point if 25% of the board are black women. You get two more points if blacks comprise 75% of middle management. And you get another point if 38% of that tally is black females. And the Africanas, or Boers, as the white farmers are called, are the principal target of ANC with these policies. And they're also rationing water to farms based on the same kind of agricultural social credit score. 60% of South Africa's water is used for farming. It is now allocated based on skin color. If you want to use more than 250,000 cubic meters of water, which by the way is not a whole lot of water, you have to be 25% black owned. If you need 500,000 cubic meters, you need 50% black ownership. If you have a million or more cubic meters, you got to be 75% black owned. And many of the Boers have lost their property, which has been eagerly scarfed up by the government and redistributed. And they're now at the point, in fact, where, like for instance, Julius Malema, who's the founder of kind of a militant uh, ANC spinoff called the Economic Freedom Fighters. He's now urging blacks to outright seize land from whites. In fact, according to this report, so much for you naysayers who sent me emails, there were 333 reported, many don't get reported, either the people are dead and can't report or they don't trust the local police, there were 333 reported attacks on Afrikaner farms in just the last year, 50 murders. Those numbers are down from 2021, or reporting of the numbers is down from 2021, which saw 415 farm attacks and 55 murders. Only 33% of the murder suspects have been arrested and convicted. And a lot of the Boers who have lost their land, their livelihood, under these reverse racist policies are now living in tent camps or squatter camps. And many are dying from cholera and other diseases, poor sanitation, water supply being major problems. Guess who controls the health services for those camps and the water delivery to those camps? The ANC. None of this is an accident. There's a reporter, an excellent one, middle of the road by the name of Mario Oriani Ambrosini. And he reports that he had a conversation with the South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, or Ramaphosa, excuse me for the pronunciation, in the 1990s. And that's when the new constitution was put into place under which all these atrocities, these civil rights violations, although not under South African law, have been taking place. Let me give you a quote here real quick. In his brutal honesty, Ramaphosa told me that ANC's 25-year strategy to deal with the whites would be like boiling a frog alive, which is done by raising the temperature very slowly. Being cold-blooded, the frog does not notice the slow temperature increase. But if the temperature is raised suddenly, the frog will jump out of the water. He meant that the black majority would pass laws transferring wealth, land, and economic power from white to black slowly and incrementally. 
until the whites lost all they had gained in South Africa, but without taking too much from them at any given time to cause them to rebel or fight, unquote. You might want to keep that in mind, folks, particularly since today's show was our replay of the history of the Declaration of Independence. In really good news, the Biden administration was forced by an appeals court the other day to hold a large offshore oil and gas lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico without a bunch of nonsense ecological protections. I brought you this story when this lawsuit first broke out a year ago, where anything to do with the petro industry had to cruise at, I'm taking a number, 10 knots very slowly, whereas any other vessel could cruise at 40 knots, and all sorts of other restrictions which made it economically prohibitive to develop the oil and gas leases. So the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, also called BOEM, B-O-E-M, which is a subsidiary of the Department of Interior, must hold the lease sale and can't, that is can't, put in these added environmental regulation burdens that they're not applying to all other commercial traffic or activity in the Gulf. By the way, as some irony, the sale of those leases was required, required folks, under the Inflation Reduction Act. It was one of the things that was thrown in there by the Cadaver Administration and Chuck Schumer, Chucky baby, to get Joe Manchin to vote for the bill. And it's one of the many things that they decided to kind of stick up his butt after they got his vote. And it's one of the reasons Manchin, I don't know if you know this or not, is now retiring. Ryan Myers, who's a senior vice president, he's also a general counsel for the American Petroleum Institute. Let me quote him, quote, Energy independence scored an important win tonight with the Fifth Circuit decision lifting unjustified restrictions on oil and natural gas vessels and restoring acreage for offshore energy development, unquote. So, yay for us. And I think we have time for one more rat-a-tat-tat now. Give you one which will make you grimace and grin kind of at the same time. So it turns out that down in Utah, you know, Utah voted for Trump. But there's a great kind of rest of the story to this. It seems that the Utah Wilderness Alliance, SUA it's called, sued the federal government about the mishandling of federal lands down there around Moab. You know, those incredible rock formations, Zion National Park. I mean, it's just a spectacular area. And the environmental group won the settlement order. Oh, have I mentioned before? Oh, yes, I have. You know, about the government saying, sue us with a wink to environmental groups, and then not fighting too hard, then entering into a settlement and making it look like the environmental group was the dog in the fight when actually the government was the accomplice all along. Well, I think that's what you got going here. But they entered into a settlement order, the Bureau of Land Management did, that is going to impose these strict protections for habitats around the Moab area. In fact, listen to this. And remember, Moab is like crazy on tourism. That's its entire economy, that whole part of Utah. And people take very good care of these resources, folks, because not only do they love them, but it's their livelihood. But it shuts down a third of about 300 miles of off-road trails around Moab. This includes to bicycles, by the way, and trail bikes, you know, non-motorized vehicles. And it shuts down roads that gets people to trails that service another many scores of square miles of terrain up there because now you can't use the road to get to where you can jump off on the trail site. So obviously the various establishments down there, restaurants, lodging, tour outfits, are looking at a sort of economic Damocles. In fact, almost every major trail west of Moab is now closed. We'll see how this all boils down 
I'm sure that the lawsuits will start flying now. But it's interesting to note that though Utah voted for Trump, this county, which is called Grand County, where Moab is located, has seen a big immigration from, or in migration, from places like California and places like New York and Illinois, you know, Washington and Oregon. And it seems that the political climate down there is not quite as red as the rest of the state, and this county voted 54% for Biden. You know, there is an adage that votes have consequences, elections have consequences, and you get exactly what you vote for. And on our upcoming series of little dips and dabs every week starting next week on what you can do for financial protection, financial preparedness for what's unfortunately looking like a coming meltdown, cryptocurrencies, metals, real estate, residential, land, safety measures, and security measures for your house. I think you'll find it fascinating and hopefully it will give you some ideas. We're out of time. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Remember, look in the mirror, repeat after me, and repeat it with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Oh, yes, we will. Keep the wind at your back. I'll talk to you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.